Good morning, church family. Good to see you today. I know for some of us it's spring break. Uh, some have already had it. Some are looking forward to it this week, and I know some still have a week to wait before it begins, but uh, I know that uh, many are enjoying that. We have some university and college students back with us, and it's always great to have you back uh, when you're on break. It's good to see you. It, uh, it is. It's a, it's a great time of the year. We're getting close to Easter. As you have seen, we'll be having a great opportunity to invite the community to worship with us on Easter Sunday. As you heard earlier, also a great opportunity to canvas and uh, send, uh, give some information to some of these brand new neighborhoods that are popping up all around us. We want to have a, uh, an opportunity to, to invite them and welcome them, even to the egg drop that's happening. So please uh, help as we, uh, as we look for these opportunities to be involved in the community, community that's around us. Today's also the last day, believe it or not, to sign up for youth camp. Uh, student ministry has camp uh, this summer, Ascend Camp. And uh, if you are wanting to go, I highly, highly encourage you to think about Ascend Camp this summer. I, I know uh, the folks that lead this camp, and uh, there's going to be excellent teaching. There's also some local churches uh, right here from Wildwood, New Community. And in the past, uh, Quest Church have also participated. So there's a lot of benefits with, with this particular camp. But it fills up fast. I remember a couple of years ago we were trying to get into the camp, and it's very difficult uh, because it fills up and, and they just they run out of space. So today's the deadline, and if you haven't done that yet, you can go online and reserve your spot to, uh, to, uh, to camp. That'll be here before we know it. It's also a day that I see as I look around, a lot of you came prepared for because you're wearing green, right? It's St. Patrick's Day, and so uh, it is the Lord's Day, but we also realize that it is St. Patrick's Day. And I, I was thinking, you know, how much do we really know about Patrick, St. Patrick as he's known? Do you know that, that, uh, that he's not Irish? Did you know he's from Britain? Uh, did you know that he was also a missionary? Let me tell you a little bit about Patrick. He was uh, growing up in Ireland, uh, son of a deacon, grandson of a minister, but, but not a follower of the Lord until a little later into his teenage years. There was, uh, uh, he was born in the 4th century, uh, 387, and so this was a time when Britain was under the control of the Roman Empire, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, chaos happening in that part of the world. And uh, he and his family were in a town near the coast there in Britain, and uh, some pirates from Ireland came. And they attacked that particular city, and they took some hostages with them. Patrick was one of them. He was separated from his mom and dad. He had not quite turned 16, and now he's on a boat. He's taken to, uh, uh, to Ireland, and he is sold into slavery. In fact, the, the person that bought him is named Milhu, and he was a, dru a druid uh, tribal priest and chief. And he, he, uh, he bought Patrick, had him as a slave, and had him uh, tend as a herdsman over, over his animals. And it was at this time, as Patrick was turning 16 years old, that he was all alone. He was frightened, and he began to remember what he had heard as a child about the Lord. And he began to pray, and one thing led to another, and Patrick became a follower of Christ. Even in this situation, in this terrible condition that he found himself in. In fact, this is how he describes it in his autobiography. He said, The Lord opened my senses to my unbelief, so that I might remember my many sins, and accordingly I might turn to the Lord my God with all my heart. 
And he, he writes in this book about how his faith continued to grow. And as he's out in the, in, the, uh, in the fields watching over the animals, he's praying day after day. And this is what he says, More and more the love of God and the fear of Him grew strong within me. And as my faith grew, so the Spirit became more and more active within me. And so here's a young man turning to faith in Christ, growing in his walk, even with the situation that he is encountering. The other slaves began to, uh, uh, to notice his devotion to God, and they started calling young Patrick holy boy, uh, probably meaning it in a, in a way just to, to recognize the path of his life. One night, Patrick had a dream, and he felt like it was a dream from the Lord. And the dream was telling him to go back to Britain. And so, uh, so uh, he escaped from slavery. He went 200 miles to the coast, got on a boat, and finally made his way back to Britain, found his parents, and was reunited. It had been six years, so now he's in his early 20s. He's with his mom and dad, and, and uh, he begins to study uh, to go into the ministry. And he's following the Lord, and all of a sudden, he has another dream. And this time, it's a dream uh, that, that, that has Irish accents in it. And people from Ireland speaking to him. And in fact, he hears in this dream, Holy boy, we beg you, come back and walk once more among us. And so Patrick thought maybe this was a call to go back to Ireland. To go back to his place of captivity. To go back and take the gospel. Now do you think the church and his family there in Britain was pretty, that they were excited to hear this? They, they did all they could to try to prevent him. But he knew. He knew that he had to go back. And he did. In fact, as he writes about, about his journey uh, back, he's going back to, to what uh, his family called barbaric Ireland. Sorry, Timothy, I don't know where Timothy's at today. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's in the notes. I didn't write that. Barbaric Ireland. They said the savages are not worth saving. That was their perspective. But Patrick disagreed, and he went. And this is what he said. So at last I came here to the Irish Gentiles to preach the gospel, and I am ready and willing to give up my own life without hesitation for His name. Now that's the man behind the day. And I know you're probably thinking what, what I'm thinking. How does the celebration and the revelry of St. Patrick's Day come from this? Where do you get the leprechauns and, and all the different things that, that, that are connected to today? And you'll have to ask Timothy Montgomery, because I, I don't know the answer to that. So I'm sure he can help you out. He's Irish. He can help connect all those dots. But why do I share that? First of all, because I think it's interesting to think of, of, a, of a man who, who was called at a young age to go and, and share the gospel in a very difficult place, right? But the other thing is, it's a, it's a great picture of a young man who had a strong faith, an active faith, that led him to obedience. And that's what the book of James is all about. We've been going through the book, and we're going to pick back up in chapter 2, verse 14. I invite your attention there. We're going to pick right back up where we left off last week. And we're going to continue thinking through what it looks like to have an active faith. In fact, in the first week when we began our study of James, we said that the theme of the book is a call to spiritual maturity by considering the relationship between faith and works. And this is sometimes a topic that can be a, a little troubling or a little difficult. 
And we know there's perspectives out there that say that, that salvation is based upon works. Or that salvation is based upon faith and works. And yet we know scriptures are clear. The scriptures clearly uh, teaching us that, that salvation comes by, by faith alone. By grace alone. And yet we see that there's also in the book of James and in other places an emphasis on, on what a true saving faith looks like in the everyday life. That it is a faith that is active. It's not just a mental ascent. It's not just a feeling. It's something that we see in the way that we live. And so I pray and hope that today that the message is clarifying. That it is, that it is a message that will give encouragement to, to followers of Christ to see that, that the life that you live is meant to, to bear fruit and to give you confidence of Christ at work in you. But it's also a very clear message that, that if that if that is not occurring, and we've not ever witnessed that, that it's a, a good indicator to look at our faith and to see, do we have a faith or do we have the faith, a saving faith in Jesus Christ? And so I invite your attention to, uh, to chapter 2, verse 14. James begins this section with a question. Now, it's interesting because verse 14 is a question, and then he's going to answer it through, through the rest of the chapter. So he's, going to, he's not going to leave us hanging. He's going to give some examples of what he means by the question that he asks. Look at verse 14 with me. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Now there's the question. Is that a saving faith? If there are not works, if there is not fruit, that accompanies the faith. So that's the question. And through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see how he answers this. Now, it's not a new topic for us. We've been looking in, in recent weeks and seeing that, that James is, 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 is making a strong argument that a, that a living faith, a true faith is a living faith, an active faith that bears fruit. In fact, uh, we've, we've seen uh, back in chapter 1, verse 22, that, that James said to be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? So it's not just enough to, to hear it. It's not just enough to speak it or say it. It's, it's something that we are to, to live out. And so that's the, really the theme of the book and particularly the, the section that we're in right now. We saw last week at the end of chapter 1 that there were some very specific ways in which we were to live this out. He said that a, that a, that a true faith is, is one that controls the tongue. That our, that our tongue is bridled. And we'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks as we get into chapter 3. But it's supposed to be something that we see as evidence of one's faith. Also, to help those in need. And do you remember the, the two groups of people that, are, that were mentioned there at the end of chapter 1? Looked at it last week. That's right, widows and, and orphans. To come alongside and find those that, that may be in a, in a unique or special situation where they need. They need additional care. Then we moved into chapter 2 and we saw that, that James said that, 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 a, that a true faith in Christ has no room for favoritism, to try to pick one group over another or to, to give this person a good seat but this other person made to stand. And, and so he was really speaking a lot about favoritism and then went right into what he called the royal law, which is to love your neighbor, remember, as yourself. So all of this is flowing out of one's faith and it's very active and it's something that is alive. And so we get here to verse 14 and he continues that theme by asking a question 
that, that is really a rhetorical one. And the answer to the question we will see that he asked, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? And his answer, as we'll see, is no. This isn't a, a genuine faith. It might be a faith, but it's not the faith, not the saving faith that is spoken of in the Word of God. Another way that we might understand this question would be this. Does every kind of faith save? Or is there a faith that does not save? We saw in the first week that James was, was writing to a diaspora of people, and their background was what? Do you remember? What kind of believers were they? Jewish believers, right? And, and he's speaking to them so that they wouldn't think that it's just because of their heritage or lineage, right? Even as, as, as good as it was for them in terms of being connected to, to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to the people of God and the nation of Israel and all of this, he said that's not enough. There must be a faith in Christ that is evident in the way one lives. He answers the question in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26. We're going to be reading this in a few minutes, but I wanted to, to give that as, a, as an overview because he answers his own question. He says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead, verse 17. It's useless, verse 20. It's dead, he says again in verse 26. So this entire section of Scripture speaks about a faith without works and James' perspective that it's not a genuine saving faith. Paul says something very similar in Romans 2. He says, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God. Did you catch that? The hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now look at that verse. Doesn't that almost sound like James? This idea of being a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Well, that's the second chapter of Romans. The next chapter, though, Paul says something that sounds like a contradiction. Look at chapter 3, verse 28. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So how do we balance these scriptures that appear to be contradictory? You might say, well, which one is it? Are we, are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? Because as I read these verses, it's a little confusing. And here's where I think the answer is. We are saved by faith alone. But a saving faith will produce works. They will show that one has been that one has been made new, that one has been redeemed. And so James isn't saying that we add deeds to the faith in order to be saved. He's simply saying saving faith that produces good work. And that's not an uncommon teaching in the New Testament. We'll see a passage even a little later in the message in which Jesus uses the example of a tree that produces fruit, showing that that's how one can identify a follower of Christ. Well, here are the four examples that, that James gives, and we'll go through these fairly quickly, but I just want us to see the flow. James asks a question in, chapter four, in verse 14, and then there's four different examples he gives. Two of them have to do with a, with a faith that is dead, a faith that is useless, both to God and to others. But then he gives two good examples of a faith that is genuine, something that's authentic. And, and because of that, it has faith toward God, works toward God, and toward others. So we'll look through these four examples very quickly. The first one is found in verses 15, 16, and 17. And it's a false faith. 
A false faith is useless toward other people. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? And what's the answer to his question there? Go ahead, what do you think? It is no good, right? Here's someone in need, and what do you have but just a a few nice words to say? You're not meeting the need that is in front of you. Let's keep reading. In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. So he's saying just these platitudes, just these statements, that doesn't demonstrate true faith. There must be a concern. In fact, Jesus has a lengthier passage in Matthew chapter 25 where he gives an example of those in need being a representative of of him. And he he goes so far to say that when you are helping the person in need, when you're giving them food or clothing or visiting them when they're sick or when they're in prison, you are ultimately serving who? Christ. Listen to what he says in verses 41 through 43. He says in verse 41, To those who are not serving and helping, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Strong words, right? He's saying that, that the kind of faith that they have, even though they might say, Lord, Lord, is not, a, is not evident. There's no evidence of a saving faith because they're not, they're not there to help. Verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't care of me. These are the words of Jesus. So he's saying that that there is an expectation that faith leads to action. We said at the end of the time last week that those who have been recipients of God's mercy should be the first ones to do what? To be a conduit of God's mercy to those who are in need. And we thought about some very specific examples and ways to do that. I came across one, maybe you remember when this happened. In New York City, there was a police officer that was uh, working a particular part of town, and he came across a homeless man who had no shoes on. And as one who had an oath to protect and to serve, he went the next level and decided he would also provide for this person that he didn't know in a time of need. It was a cold night, and uh, you can see the man there. A tourist actually took a picture of this, and uh, the police officer, uh, whose uh, name here is Larry DePrimo, he noticed that the, that the man was there without any shoes on and happened to be sitting in front of a shoe store. Do you see the, the, uh, the display rack behind there in the sidewalk? And so the officer decided that he was going to do something about it. He went in. He bought a pair of all-weather boots. He bought some socks. He went back out on the the article says that he not only gave them to the man, but he also helped, them, helped the man put them on and make sure that he had good, uh, good uh, uh, shoes uh, for the evening. So that's a, an example of one who saw a need, who met a need. And that's, that's, that's the picture that we are given as we read the book of James. Let's look at the next example. He says that a, that a faith that is, that, is, that is false, one that's not, not true, is also one that that, that doesn't obey God. So it's not only not helping others, it's also not obeying God. Let's look at uh, verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, 
You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Interesting passage here. One to think about. That, uh, that this is speaking about the, a, an objection that may be raised. When he, when he says, hey, here's, here's someone that, that needs food or clothing, and that the other person says, well, maybe that's something for someone else to do. Someone has faith, other per, another person has works, and so it'll all work out. And James says, no, we have to have both. I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you what I believe by the way in which I act. And then he takes it a step further and says, it's not just about belief, because even the de- demons, they have a belief, but do they obey God? And so he says, yes, the, the demons can understand that God exists, but it doesn't make them obedient or saved. And so the idea that one can separate or compartmentalize faith from works in his mind is an error, because the saving faith will lead to these kinds of, of works, this kind of life will flow from them. So a false faith disobeys God. Number three, look at verses 20 to 24. A true faith obeys God. Now here is where he goes, and uh, the next two examples come out of the Old Testament. Uh, Beginning in verse 20, he's going to speak about Abraham, the the father of the Jewish nation, uh, the one who who received the promise uh, from God to to, to be the, the patriarch of, of, this, of this nation. And, uh, and so it's a familiar person, but, but he, he's continuing to, to expose this idea that faith and works can be, can be separated. And he, he says that it's senseless. It just doesn't make sense. In fact, he begins with some strong language in verse 20 by saying, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father? justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now again, as we read that, it may, it may cause some, some questions to rise up. How do, we, how do we understand verses like this and not walk away with the idea that we have to have works as a prerequisite to being saved? So let's think about that for a few minutes. We begin with Abraham. Abraham is one who, who did believe God. He did obey God. Uh, in fact, this quote here in verse 23 that says that that Abraham's belief was credited to him as righteousness, came before the encounter that he had with his son Isaac. So even before he demonstrated his faith in action, he was already credited by God as one who had a belief. You can read Genesis 22. You can read the story, uh, the account of, of when God asked Abraham to give Isaac back as a sacrifice. And it's, it's a troubling passage to read, right? You, start, you stop and you think about, about what's being asked. Here was, it was a, a man, Abraham, and his wife Sarah, who had been promised to be the, uh, uh, the, to be the beginning of this, of this fruitful nation, and they, they didn't have a child together. And finally they did, and they named him Isaac, and now God is saying to give him back. 
just doesn't make sense to us. In fact, the, the whole idea of, of a sacrifice in that way is, is something that is troubling to even think about. But I mentioned in the first service, you don't find that anywhere else in the Bible where God asks for something like that until you get to where? To the Gospels. When God gave His only Son as a sacrifice. But in Abraham's case, God had a plan. God had a plan to provide another way. And so we get this idea of, of a substitute for another because you remember the account, there was a ram that was nearby. And the ram became the offering, not the child. And so, so it ends well, and it's a, it's a, it's a great, a great uh, reminder of God's provision. But it's also a picture of Abraham willing to obey. God, wherever you lead me, I'll go. I will obey you. As you lead. And so James uses that as an example to say he had a faith. He had a belief in God. And through his actions, that faith is evident through his, through his life. Number four, we get another person. We're introduced back to a person named Rahab. And this is the fourth example. And we can call this a true faith that benefits others. Let's look at verses. Uh, uh, 25 and 26. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So again, James is writing to a Jewish audience. They remember the account of Rahab. They remember from Joshua chapter 2 that Joshua was, was called to take the people into the promised land. And he knew that he was to send spies in first to kind of get an idea. And God had prepared a lady who lived in the city wall named Rahab. So, not the best of professions, right? And yet she had a faith in God. And she was obedient by helping out those who uh, she was entrusted with. And so, so she, she helped them and she didn't she didn't turn them in. In fact, what she did is she said, I have a belief in your Lord. And I have a belief in, in what He is doing. And that this is, is part of His plan. And so she was acting in faith. Actively faithful. And we know that Rahab was one who would be listed in the genealogy of David. And then from there, Jesus Christ. And so God had a plan where He worked through her. She wasn't, she wasn't part of the Hebrew family. But she was brought in. She was brought into God's family and He used her because she had a faith in Him and she was obeying as He led. So as we conclude this morning, we see what verse 26 says. It says, faith without works is dead. But the, the other is also true. Genuine faith leads to good works. And so we, we see that over and over. And I want to be clear, believers are justified the moment they believe. As soon as you come to faith in Christ and you say, Christ, I need you. I need your forgiveness. You are, you are saved then. It's not based upon what you do. We don't earn our salvation. In fact, one example of that is one of the thieves that was crucified next to Jesus. Do you remember that before he died, he professed a belief that Jesus was the Son of God? Did he have any time to live a life of good works? No, he was nailed to a cross next to Jesus. But what did Jesus tell him? So surely I tell you today, you'll be with me where? In paradise. So there was this, this, this understanding that he was saved. So it was based upon a confession of faith, not upon works. However, as we have opportunity to live for Christ, we see that faith involves obedience. A.W. Tozer said it this way, 
The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. Nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying it's not just you find someone that has these good works and say, oh, that, that then means they're saved. But he also is saying that you don't just find the faith that's not followed by works. He finishes by saying the two are opposite sides of the same coin. Again, driving home the point that authentic faith leads to a life of action. Several years ago, I read about a college student that was taking a speech class. Anybody have a speech class when you're in college? I had it my first semester. It scared me to death, right? I know you think I speak publicly every week, but it's a fearful, frightening thing to stand up in front of a group of people and speak. And so I'm in this speech class. You've probably been in one either in school or had other occasions. Well, this particular student had to give a persuasive speech. That means the audience needed to be persuaded in what he was saying that it was right. And so he decided he'd pick a topic called the law of the pendulum. And so he had an example that he would use and he would bring the class in to, to be able to see that, that a pendulum is, is a scientific principle. This is what he said. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. And so if you look at the picture here, you can see this is like a, almost like a yo-yo, right? So he goes up to a, to a dry erase board or a chalkboard, and he, he pulls it off to the side, he makes a mark, and he shows that it won't go past the mark that he, that he, uh, that he wrote on the board. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, he said, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it finally reaches a point of rest, also known as equilibrium. So he, he demonstrated with this yo-yo or this top on the board, and, and after he was done, he asked the class, how many of you all are persuaded? How many of you all believe in the law of the pendulum? And as you might expect, everyone's hand went up, including the professor. They all clapped. The professor began to make his way to the front, and he said, but wait, I, I'm not done yet. I've got another example for you. And so he took them to the, to the room uh, next door, and it was an open room like this one where the, the, uh, where the uh, trusses and the beams were exposed. And he had arranged to put 250 pounds of, of various weights on some parachute cord, and it was dangling in the middle of the room. So no longer are we dealing with a yo-yo or a top. Now we've got something that's serious. And over to the side, against a concrete wall, he had a table, and on top of the table, he had a chair. And you see where this story is going, don't you? You all all said you believe in the law of the pendulum, so let's put that belief into practice. Mr. Professor, would you mind to take a seat in the chair? So the professor came forward, wanted to, wanted to go along with it. He got up on the table, got up on the chair, and uh, the young man took the, the, the weight, the 250 pounds, and he, he went all the way to the side of the room, and he put it right up to the professor's nose where it was almost touching. He said, Professor, do you really believe the law of the pendulum? His face is sweating, and he's nervous about what's going on. And he's, He affirmed that, yes, he did really believe the law of the pendulum. And at that point, he let go of the weight. You could just hear the, the swishing sound as it made its way across and went all the way to the other side, came to a point of rest, and then began coming back the other way. And do you know what that professor did? Yeah, that's right. He, just, he jumped right off the chair, right, out, right back out in, into the room, safe from the, uh, the pendulum, right? And uh, as, the, as the pendulum's moving back and forth, 
the professor asked the class, or excuse me, the student asked the class, did the professor really believe in the law of the pendulum? To which everyone in the class said, no, no, of course he didn't. Well, what's the point? Belief leads to action. Everything that we, that we say about who Christ is and what we believe from God's Word is, is meant to, to, to lead us into a, an active faith. I came across something in a commentary this week that I would not seen before. It's uh, from Dan Doriani. He's a professor at Covenant. And he, he put together a diagram that I think is very helpful that helps explain the relationship of faith and works. Let's put it up on the screen. You'll see four different ways of looking at it. Four ways that you can see that faith and works are connected. Now, not all four of those are right. Not all four of those come from Scripture, but those are four ways that people try to make sense of faith and works. Let's look at the first one. Every time you see an arrow, you can just say the word results in or produces. So, works that produces salvation. Good works produce salvation. Are there people in the world that believe that? Yeah. There are. In fact, I think that's kind of a normal mindset that, that, that we, must, we must earn or deserve salvation. But is that what Scripture teaches? That it's based on works? Does the Bible teach that salvation is based on works? No. Well, here's the next one. Some would believe that you have to have works, but you also have to have faith. You put those together and it results in salvation. Let me ask you, church, does the, does the Bible teach that? That it's a matter of having a faith and then also working and then Together you have salvation? No. No. It's by faith alone. It's by grace alone. And so that means that some have said, well, it's faith that results in salvation, which we could agree with that. But the fourth point takes it a little further. That says faith results in salvation and works. That that's just the normal progression. Now I know that we could get down into this controversy of, whether Jesus can be someone's uh, Lord or be someone's Savior but not their Lord. You've probably heard some of those challenges and I'm not trying to, to get into to, to that, uh, that conflict. But what I am trying to do is say, how do we understand James? We can understand James by saying that, that faith indeed leads to salvation. And that salvation, when Christ comes into one's life, will make a difference. It will begin to produce fruit. And so that's where we see what he put as the fourth point. I said earlier that Jesus used the example of a, of a good tree producing good fruit. That's found in Matthew 7, verse 17. We see the, the idea that, that when one is in Christ, he will be at work. But we also know, very famous verse, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that emphasizes the point of faith. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. What are those next three words? Not from works, so that no one can boast. So you see what we're doing today. We're going to back and forth with Scriptures, and you're probably going, okay, there, there's a lot here, and it, it, it can be a little confusing. Unless we see that in all of Scripture, they, they harmonize. They complement one another to say, yes, salvation comes by faith. And when someone is in the faith, there will be works that follow. It's just that normal progression. Because if we keep reading Ephesians 2, what does verse 10 say? For you are saved, excuse me, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? 
good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That's the very next verse. So we see that we're saved by faith alone, by His grace, and that it leads us right in to the works that are expected. As we close this morning, I want to ask you, I want to ask you how you respond to this passage today. Because I hope for many of us that are here, we see that it it gives us affirmation that, that the Lord has been at work. Like He was in Patrick's life. He came upon Patrick and and Patrick was growing and he was changing as as the Lord was working in him. That's what we see in our own lives. Doesn't mean perfection. Doesn't mean that we do, do everything right every time, but that we see that maturity. But for some, maybe this is a wake up call where you say, you know, I've always had a belief in God, but I've not experienced this changed life. I've not experienced this this change that produces fruit. Maybe today is a day where you have an understanding of what it means to be saved, an understanding of what it means to to follow Christ so that He can work in you and through you. So as we go to the response time, I just want to say if you have questions this morning, you don't have to leave upset, confused, puzzled by this whole thing of faith and works. We would love to talk with you even more about that. In fact, you'll notice the tables over on this side. They are set up there for a response time. That if you have a question, if you'd like to talk more about this topic, or if you have a a prayer need and would like for someone to pray with you, when, when we sing this next song or when the service is over, you can stop by those tables and you can you can you can walk out these doors today with an assurance, an assurance, a biblical assurance that you are in Christ and that He is in you. So if nothing else, may this topic from James 2, encourage us to pursue that genuine, authentic faith the Scripture teaches. Why don't we take a moment to pray and ask God to apply His Word to us now. In a moment, the ushers will come and and receive the offering. We'll also have a song to respond. And for some of us, maybe it's a time to sing, a time to pray, a time to worship. But for some of us, it may be a real time of reflection just to ask and to, to, to ask the Lord to, to use His Word to help us see who we are before Him today. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this book of James. We receive Your Word today. And we pray that we can receive it in faith and with belief and with an understanding that You provide. That we may live lives that are changed. That we may live lives that bear fruit And that you can glorify yourself through this church and through the the, the people of this church. That we can demonstrate that our faith has changed us. And that we're ready to extend mercy to those who are in in a place of need. That we are ready to see our faith grow and our lives and our, 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 our decisions be challenged in light of your word. So God, may you take it today. May you apply it to each one. For those who are, are, are in you, Lord, may this be a day where they are assured and, and confident of who they are in you. But for any that may have been misled or had a misunderstanding about the faith that it takes to follow Christ, may today be a day of salvation that you would use your word to draw people to yourself. Father, may you bless this time of response, bless the offering that's being received and use it for your purpose in our community and around this world. We pray this in Christ's name.
and all of God's people said, Amen.